personal views and opinions expressed by our podcast guests are their own and are not legal advice or official statements by their organizations. Hello, my name is Debbie Reynolds. They call me the Data Diva. This is the Data Diva Fox Privacy Podcast, where we discuss data privacy issues with industry leaders around the world with information that businesses need to know now. I have a special guest on the show, Dr. Keeper Sharkey. She has had many accolades. I have the pleasure of collaborating with her, but I'll tell you a few. First of all, she is founder and director of Old L3C. She has been named one of the 40 under 40 in cybersecurity for 2023 for Top Cyber News Magazine. She is a leader and author. She is an expert in quantum industry advisor to things like InfoGuard. She's also a PhD in quantum chemical physics from the University of Arizona. So welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. That's a mouthful. We got to know each other because we collaborate with IEEE on a project related to connected systems. You're the co-chair of the quantum computing group. I'm the chair of the data and human flow. So the human touchy-feely part of the project, that's what I'm part of. But I wanted to get you on the program. You and I have had great chats whether it be within the group or just one-on-one. And you're fascinating. Thank you. You're incredibly smart. My mind was blown the first time I ever heard you speak. And I wanted to have you on the show for a long time because I feel like quantum is an area that people hear about. They don't know what it is, why it's important. and I think I would love for you to talk about that. But before we start, tell me about your trajectory in your career and why you're interested in quantum and cyber. Sure. So I did not start out in cyber or data. My early career was as a chemist mixing chemicals on the lab bench. Um, I've always been fascinated by chemistry. Um, I grew up um, in Las Vegas, Nevada. And that's where the Nevada test site is, you know, for the atomic bomb. So there was a lot of history there. And as a child, I was just genuinely curious in, you know, quantum as a weapon Uh, growing up. You know, when I was in elementary school, we would have, uh, you know, just like you, you know, practice for fire uh, drills, right? We would have to test... uh, practice for uh, if there ever was an atomic bomb that went off and we'd have to get under our desks and do this whole thing. So I was always just genuinely curious about what quantum was. And, you know, when I was in high school, I picked up a book by Linus Pauling, who was one of the fathers of quantum chemistry. And I tried to read the pages when I was a teenager, but it was super difficult. So when I became a chemist in college. I realized that mathematics was very important to my career and understanding the math behind chemistry uh, would be valuable. And so I became a double major in math and chemistry. And um, 
one day it just clicked. I just understood all of a sudden what quantum was all about. And it wasn't scary anymore to me. Um, and I decided to join a research group at the University of Arizona. Um, I was there in that research group for a couple years as an undergraduate where I published six papers as an undergrad in a two-year time period. Um, and then those papers allowed me to get a specialized degree from the University of Arizona uh, called Chemical Physics. And I was one of the first students to join the chemical physics program due, you know, due to my interests. I went on to publish another 20 papers when I was in graduate school on quantum chemistry, um, which is basically unheard of for most graduate students. You know, they're lucky to get one or two, maybe. Um, in grad school. So I came away with a robust publication record. My citation record as of today is over 400. Um, so my work is definitely getting visibility. And then, um, you know, and I've taught high school uh, chemistry, you know, where I was able to, you know, inspire young kids to learn about quantum, go into industry. And I, um, got a job as a data scientist at a company working in insurance and finance. And we were all about sequential marketing programs at that job. And it was, there's all this information about PII I had to learn about all of a sudden and data privacy and how to protect the customers, but yet use that information to target them in, you know, marketing schemes. Um, and in that job, I tried to introduce quantum concepts and it was working. Um, at that time, I realized that the National Quantum Initiative was going underway. This was in 2018. And um, it was signed by President Trump at the time. And so the National Quantum Initiative was all about funding, you know, startups and projects and you know, all sorts of, you know, concepts in quantum. It, this was the first time quantum had been identified in the U.S. government as a priority in, in the history of the U.S. government. And so I quit my job as a data scientist and made my startup company, Ode, L3C. Um, and L3C is particular towards being a social benefit. So we like to, you know, um, educate at Ode. So, you know, we spent time writing a book on quantum chemistry, uh, quantum chemistry and computing for the, the curious, illustrated with Python Kiskit code. And a lot of the things that are being done to optimize chemistry problems are also applied to other kinds of problems um, uh, that we use like transportation, optimizing um, how, you know, the supply chain and things like that. So a lot of the methods are translatable from industry to industry. And, um, in about 2019, I went to quantum.tech Congress. It was the first uh, conference of its kind where quantum technologies came together. It was funded by the Five Eyes Nation. Um, and, and we, you know, met at the cons British consulate's office in Boston. And, and it was a grand old time. And there I met with a lot of security folk. And, you know, there's issues in security. Um, when it comes to, you know, encryption and RSA and, uh, you know, public key distribution and things like that. So I started to learn about what the problems were and the threats that quantum computing was presenting. So the idea is that in quantum computing, we have an exponential scale of computational power. And if you have an exponential scale of computational power, potentially you can break your encryption keys. Okay. 
And so I spent a lot of time studying this stuff and realized that there's a lot of holes in the industry. I wrote some interesting white papers in 2022 that led to me being um, invited to DFIDIC, which is the Department of the Air Force Information Technology Conference, to talk about quantum to the Air Force. And as a result of that, I was named 40 Under 40 in Cybersecurity from the Capital Tech University Top Cyber News Magazine which was an honor. And, um, you know, so there's been a very interesting career shift for me in cyber. So now I've been working with some top encryptionists on coming up with new methods to enhance encryption so that they can be put into the standards like National Institute of Standards and Technology, right? So that's where I met. And then, you know, I joined the IEEE in the same kind of time period within the last year. And the IEEE group is all about creating evidence to make standards for the, the community. And so I'm gathering the evidence in that group to uh, build up the case for needing to create standards for cybersecurity and next generation connectivity systems. Wow, that's tremendous. Thank you for that background. So for the audience, for people who don't understand, um, they've heard quantum computing thrown around a lot. So tell me a little bit, explain for the people who may not fully understand what quantum computing is, what is the danger, what's the, the threat? So quantum computing leverages quantum mechanics of various chemical systems. Um, there are different types of hardware that are being developed, um, anywhere from ion traps. So basically you use lasers and magnetic fields to trap ions as qubits, or we have uh, superconductivity uh, that we can leverage. There's these various platforms for understanding what the idea of a qubit is. So the idea of a qubit is pretty simple. It's basically stating that some chemistry can be in the state of one or zero, which is the basis for most computations, either a one or zero. But we use a principle of quantum mechanics called superposition, where the qubit can be in either one or zero at the same time. So there's some computational flexibility there. And as we grow in the number of qubits, we scale exponentially the computational power. And right now, classical computing doesn't have the ability to scale exponentially. So classical, has, classical computing has always been limited in that. And as a result, we have a hard time being able to do computations. We're limited in the way we represent neural networks or artificial intelligence, although we are gaining a lot of advantage now, um, um, quantum computing is supposed to offer leverage in that scenario, which also has a negative impact when it comes to uh, solving a cryptographic key, right? Being able to identify what a key is or a password. So it's going to become easier and easier to hack into systems and our passwords are going to have to get more complicated and more complicated to the point where humans cannot create their own passwords anymore or remember a password. So they're going to have to have password managers. And I'm sure most of us have been moving towards that anyway. Um, 
but yeah, so that's that's the fear behind the quantum computing is that it has the capability to um, one day be able to solve all of these problems. And then, so the so the issue right now for bad with bad actors is that they're stealing data. They're stealing all of our data now, with the hopes of in the future they'll have the capability of being able to hack that and then understand our data. And so it's not not as secure as we think it is, because if they can steal it now and hack hack it and understand it at a later date, then they have an advantage over us. Right. And I guess one way you correct me if I'm wrong on this, one way that I think about quantum computing versus classical computing, if you give a computer a task to do, it tries to turn through that problem almost like in a linear process where quantum computing, it could be running simultaneously many different scenarios to actually do computing. So it doesn't take as long. So it creates more inertia, I guess, more speed in computing. Is that right? Uh, yeah, so it's it's not just about the speed. So there's two things going on here. It's It's the speed, but it's also the computational space. So it's about how much it can process at the same time. So yes, there's it's a twofold. And I wouldn't say that it's one or the other. It's kind of both at the same time. And being able to get that computational speed up um, is very valuable in, in solving major problems, which is what we want to be able to do to, to enhance humanity, right? But when these kinds of technologies fall into the, into bad actors' hands, it can also create a negative impact that we need to also be aware of and be planning for um, and just make sure that we're making the right steps to protect ourselves against those kinds of kinds of things. Absolutely. The White House, I think at the end of 2022, they put out, I guess, an edict of some sort to say that they wanted certain agencies within the government to review software that they're using or systems that they're using to try to make sure that they're quantum ready, knowing that quantum capabilities are coming online and they want to guard against that. Also, one interesting thing about this is that they put kind of a roadmap in in place about certain agencies have to do things by a certain date and they're trying to keep that rolling. But I think one of the impacts that it will have is on the companies that build software. I think they're going to have to do a better job of explaining how they address quantum computing and how they guard against quantum cryptography that may be broken by quantum computing. Yes. Yeah, so there's a lot that has to happen here. And this is going to have to be an all hands on deck kind of approach um, from multiple people in the industry. And there is a group out there called Quantum Economic Development Consortium, which is a conglomerate, conglomerate of uh, quantum startups or even, you know, big organizations, Fortune 500. Um, and we all come together to be able to address these issues. It's partially funded by NIST, uh, National Science, National Institute of Standards and Technology. And we are addressing these actively in this organization where we're setting the framework to be able to come up with information for companies that are doing the de development, right? So that they can ready themselves against this threat of the future. And, um, you know, we do have active, um, you know, 
uh, efforts that are helping these organizations not just create new hardware, but also the software. And I would say that that's also kind of what we're doing in the IEEE. We're trying to create the evidence to show that standards need to be set in place so that organizations who are doing the software development have some place to go and they don't have to reinvent the wheel, right? But we do need multiple people thinking about this, multiple organizations learning and developing and coming up with new ideas and being willing to share those ideas to protect everybody in the future. Yeah. I'll give a plug to a paper that we collaborated on for IEEE. Okay. It is the IEEE Industry Connections Report called Cybersecurity for Next Generation Connectivity Systems, Rethinking Digital Architectures to Safeguard the Next Generation of Cybersecurity Breaches. So I have that on my profile. That's on your profile as well. If anyone wants to grab that paper, it's pretty cool. I think it's 34 pages, so it's not like a really hard read, but it's pretty good in terms of the guidance and the information that we're trying to disseminate for people. What was your thoughts about cybersecurity and being proactive? So I feel like companies in the past have thought that cybersecurity is like the fire department. So it's like, you so you have a fire department down the street, you don't think about it until you have a fire, and then you call and like, hey, my fire, my house is on fire, right? But in order to solve these complex issues that we have with technology, companies need to be thinking proactively. All companies need to be thinking about cyber proactively. It shouldn't be just like, oh my God, this broke or this bad thing happened, because we see companies going out of business as a result of things like breaches and problems like that. So how do you communicate to people? How do you get the message across to people that cybersecurity isn't like a fire department reactive thing? It has to be more of a proactive thing, especially in the quantum area. Well, I would say that it shouldn't be something that each organization should have to take on all by themselves. So I think there needs to be more of a network around what cybersecurity really is so that, you know, organizations who think that they don't have a budget to, you know, have the security department as just a fire department that they call when they need help, right? But it's more of a way to um, collaborate with other organizations, right? And bring in help when they, you know, before they need it to see what other organizations are going through. Um, If we don't have that networking in place, it's going to be very hard for an organization to see the need or to think that they can also become experts at that as well, right? Um, and, you know, I experienced that in my prior job of, of data science. It wasn't a problem until it was a problem, <laughs> right? And, you know, I had to work actively with the cyber team to even get new technology to help me in my job, but they didn't see the need, What you know, the why I would need it in the first place. And so there's always this back and forth with the team. And so they're always, um, I would say, less active because the efforts that they have to put in to protect themselves are far greater than just letting the problem happen and fixing it later. So uh, it's it's hard to make that argument for a lot of organizations. So there needs to be better networking for companies. Um, and the the information needs to be put out publicly, I think, as a public benefit so that they can actually have their organization stay safe and not go out of business due to these breaches. Um, the breaches can be really interesting from, you know, hacking 
uh, subway systems and, and, and finances and shutting subways down and people can't communi- uh, go to work all of a sudden because the subway doesn't work anymore. This was an incident in San Francisco a few years ago, I just thought was, you know, absolutely astonishing. So it doesn't just affect organizations. It can affect people, everyday people, right? And how does the everyday person care about these cyber breaches is really important. And and most of the time, people don't want to know about the news or watch the news. They just want to go home and cuddle with their kitties or their dog and, you know, go play sports or something. And, and, you know, they don't want to have to think about, you know, tomorrow, they might not be able to get to work because of some sort of security breach, right? So that's, that's the problem is getting the common public aware of the problems as well, not just the companies that it's affecting. Yeah, I agree with that. There definitely needs to be more data sharing, more public private partnership, because we all have data, we all have data that we want to protect. I want your thoughts about privacy. So your cybersecurity, I'm in the privacy realm, but we work together and I feel like privacy and cybersecurity have a symbiotic relationship. But tell me your perspective of where we are in privacy or how you found privacy in terms of collaborating with people. So I think privacy is a really big deal. And I think that it can be defined in a few different ways for different people on their viewpoints. Um, And I think that it's also a generational um, definition. So uh, I think that sometimes people might have an idea about what what should be private and younger kids might say, oh, I don't see why that's a big deal, right? Um, And so I think there's a lot of, you know, miscommunications about what actually privacy is within the industry. Um, And then, you know, in terms of, um, you know, what privacy, you know, means for me, I think that I should be able to use social media platforms and, you know, be able to communicate with my friends and community about myself personally and not feel like it's going to be taken to a third party, you know, group that's going to use it somehow to leverage something against me or use it to target me in some kind of ad campaign or whatever, because now I just feel like anytime I use my phone to, you know, Google something, right? So like if I say I'm looking for a a new uh, gadget or a widget of some kind, the next thing I know it's being advertised and targeted to my husband on his phone, right? So it's the most bizarre thing. And I think that that's not a a world of privacy. And, you know, I want to feel like my children are protected. You know, Um, I have a kid in, you know, elementary school and the school wants to be able to have a social media site so the parents can see what's going on. And, you know, we can share with the grandparents and all sorts of stuff. But they have to say, is it okay for me to post a picture of your child? Right. And, and, And I want to move away from a world where we can be safe and we can communicate with our friends and family and we have a platform to share photos. I love that idea, but also do it in a way that's safe to where people don't have a way to target me um, or my kid in child exploitation, right? Or bad, you know, bad scenarios. And that happens. That's definitely happening. It can be used against us. Um, And that's scary. That's very scary. Yeah, I agree. I think 
because we all have data, we all move through the world and have digital touch points, we're concerned about what organizations or bad actors or whomever, what they can do with the data that we have, even stuff that we don't think is important. So you have a phone in your pocket, you walk to the coffee shop, like somebody somewhere wants to buy that information, even though you may not know why they want it. I was talking to my niece, thinks I'm a nerd and has for many years, but we had gone on a trip to New York and she went to a privacy event with me. And somehow she talked to Heidi Sass, a friend of mine in Washington. And somehow my me talking with her didn't really get through to her, but Heidi did in terms of her own personal data. And I look over to them, her arms are like flailing. She's like, oh my God, I can't believe it. So now like every little thing she calls me, she's like, my face was scanned in Canada at the airport. You know, she's like, what's going on with my information? So I feel like when people have more of a personal feeling or a personal story about privacy, it really helps them professionally, right? Or in different ways, because they can say, instead of it being like a faraway problem, something that you can relate with your, your personal life. Yeah. And, you know, somebody shouldn't be able to use, you know, the dark web and find out my address and my phone number and where I live. And and that kind of thing is really scary. So one thing I have been working on um, is with the InfraGuard, uh, which is a public-private partnership uh, with the FBI. And I've been uh, serving on a cross-sector council for digital exhaust. And so basically, that digital exhaust is all about how to eliminate the data and that you're putting out there when you sign up for these programs, right? And, you know, I oftentimes my 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 kid in elementary school will say, hey, can I play on your phone for a little while? And he'll down he'll start downloading games and gosh only knows what he's agreeing to. You know, I don't know. And you have to read all of these documents and, you know, you basically have to become a lawyer nowadays to understand how your data is being used. And if you don't have a good friend like Heidi Sass to help you get through this, it can be traumatizing to have to read all this legal jargon. So I think one thing in moving forward, at least for our community and, you know, protecting America is to be able to teach legal concepts to kids in high school. Have them understand what these kinds of documents look like, what is standard, what's going on in the government. And you know, it should be a high school requirement at this point so that when they go out into the real world, they understand better what it is that they're signing up for. I mean, I think it should be a part of education now at this point, because you know, if we're going to have these devices that basically force us into all of these agreements, we should be you know, educated and how to do that, if this is going to be a standard way of moving forward in our communities. Absolutely. I guess I give a shout out to a mutual friend of ours, James W. He he's part of InfraGuard as well with the FBI. And he puts out a newsletter that is phenomenal. It's called Smoke Signals. Uh, he's yes. also a, a barbecuer. So he he uh, relates that uh, cybersecurity to barbecue. But he has really helpful information that he puts out that could be used not only in your professional life, but also in your privacy, uh, in your private life. Because, you know, we have families, we have, you know, parents and kids. And we want to be able to share 
information about how they can protect themselves as well. So definitely check that out. That newsletter is phenomenal. Yes, I love smoke signals. And uh, James is great. He serves on the Digital Exhaust Council with me as the FBI partner. Um, So he's basically, him and his team are the ones who have put together the Digital Exhaust. And we just released um, 4.0. And we're doing some trainings um, out there. And and a lot of the times we, we just are trying to find ways to communicate to the public how to move forward and how to protect themselves and what to do. And, and it can feel like a daunting task. So James says, you know, the best way to stay healthy is to do five things a day to help you, you know, don't do it all at once, but just do five things that can help you move forward, you know, bite it off in little tiny chunks. And before you know it, six months later, you're done with going through the exercise of getting your digital life cleaned up and, and having that digital exhaust taken care of. Um, and, you know, but when you're busy running a business or taking care of kids, um, it's hard to find that kind of time to to clean this up. And I think that, you know, these organizations that are uh, wanting us to use our platform should take more responsibility for doing it for us. I shouldn't have to work for them. And that's how I feel like I feel like we as individuals are all working for them to protect ourselves and they should be protecting us. It should be their responsibility, you know. I want your thoughts on AI. So as we can see, I I don't know, I think in the news cycle, the media picks up a thing that they want to talk about a lot at a certain time. So everyone's going crazy, gaga about AI. And I think it's going to last for a while, mostly because now it's not just, um, it's not just something that, that business people use. It's something, especially with things like chat GPT and public access to large language models, you know, it creates more interest uh, in that top. I just want to know from you, how does AI complicate things that are happening in quantum? Well, okay, AI is complicated to begin with, let alone having the layer of quantum added on top of that. So, you know, AI, it has the ability to fool everyone right? It has the ability to create these deep fakes. And um, we're moving into a world where if we can't monitor AI and its usage, usage, then we're going to have a serious problem on our hands because we're not going to know which end is up anymore. And our reality is going to change very fast. Um, And I've never really been a big fan of AI as it stands in the sense that like it can be used as a weapon. Um, and that's basically what's happening. I think it should be used for good. Um, and, you know, if you add the layer of being able to make AI more powerful with quantum, then it's only be- going to become a weapon faster. It's going to become a weapon more seriously. Um, and I think that tools like ChatGPT are fabulous if you can use it to streamline your work. Um, you know, the other day I had it help me write a letter to somebody, right? And what normally would take me hours and maybe days of thinking and contemplating and rewriting and everything, it was done in like a matter of 20 minutes, you know, and going back and forth with it and say, oh, change this paragraph, you know, be nicer, change this, you know. And so I think it can be used for good and it can be used to help us, um, you know, uh, but AI is just another tool it's not something to be afraid of unless we don't keep it safe and we have it turn into a weapon. I mean, it's just as simple as that. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that concerns me and I want your thoughts is that 
I feel like people with classical computing and the stuff that we're accustomed to, like Web 2.0 right now, we're not doing a great job of protecting ourselves or being educated about how to protect ourselves now. So now we're moving into an area with more people using AI tools and more computational capability that's on deck. I'm concerned about the technology getting exponentially more complex. And I feel like, you know, it's almost like I wish we had a better foundation so that people can build on that. But I feel like we're going like like 90 miles an hour towards, you know, the future in a way that I, I don't feel like people are ready. Yeah, I would agree with that. People aren't ready for it. They haven't been educated in it. And there's been so much progress made to where it's going to be hard to catch people up on the reality of what AI is. And there's a lot of futuristic stuff out there. You know, Netflix puts shows out all the time or, you know, Hollywood or whatever, where they try to make it, you know, amenable to um, the common public. But you'll always see it used as a weapon in these shows, right? It's always used in the negative like connotation, right? And we, that's what we need to protect ourselves from. So a lot of the times I think it is good that we make people aware of the bad side of things so that they can have the inspiration to learn about what it is in the first place um, and then use it, you know, to protect ourselves. But, um, you know, in terms of, of, you know, AI growing exponential, it, it will. But I can say that when it comes to, you know, AI tools like ChatGPT, it can't solve math problems. It's not going to be able to solve a math problem, at least not now. And I don't see that anytime in the near future. It's not going to be able to take a derivative. It's not going to be able to calculate, you know, do calculus and integrals. And unless it undertakes that language model and it starts to interpret how it can do the mathematics, um, I see that very far in the future. Um, you know, and it is being used to write code right now, ChatGPT, but that's based on the way people have written code prior. And so if our codes haven't really been developed and optimized well to protect ourselves, it's only going to create more bad code, more code that's not secure, more code that doesn't really make, make things move forward. So it's only going to be as good as the best language models as we have and the learning from that. So if we're not good ourselves, it's only going to learn the bad side of what it is that we've created, right? It's not going to, I don't think it's going to. More of the bad habits. Right. It's going to learn the bad habits. I don't think it's going to create the good from bad because I don't think it really, artificial intelligence doesn't have that capability of being able to really, I don't think that it has the artificial intelligence that people think it does. It's not going to be able to do the mathematics. It's not going to be to do all of these things and it's only going to learn. And so chat GPT all the time gives out in, incorrect information, you know, and it says, well, you know, you can tell it that wasn't correct. And so it will learn then that that wasn't correct. Right. And so we have to correct chat GPT based on our own language, but um, you know, learn the language models. You know, get yourself into the mathematics. I think that math isn't as scary as, as, you know, people make it out to be. That's good advice. AI is going to evolve regardless of whether we want to use it or not. I'm telling people they need to learn how to, you know, if they're using language models either now or we're seeing companies putting 
capabilities within apps or applications that we use every day. So getting used to talking to those models or figuring out how to get work done, I think is really, really cool. Tell me a little bit, you, you touched a little bit on this about some of the dangers, uh, not only uh, AI and quantum computing, but someone I know said that we're living now in like a post-reality world where it will be hard for us to tell the difference between what's real and what's fake. And so, and that, that has privacy implications as well. But what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. We're definitely to that point where we won't know what's real and what's fake. And, and that's terrifying when, you know, you're raising children and you're thinking, at least I used to know what was real when I was growing up and my kid might not know what's real and the reality can be, I mean, the psychological effects of that on our, on our children are going to be, I don't even know what, how, how to process that as a mother, like that's terrifying. Right. Um, and yeah, I, I was watching a YouTube show with my kid the other day and they were telling him that, um, you know, there's a jungle that's on the North Pole. <laughs> and I was like, what? That's insanity. Okay. There's no jungle at the North Pole. Okay. You know, and then I have to, you know, try to correct him, you know, in the show. And 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 that's, and that's not even AI. That's not even like, that's just, you know, the YouTube show. Like, okay. <laughs> uh, but yeah, not knowing if, if a celebrity is really talking or if your government official is not really talking or like how, and then, you know, what if there's an emergency that is goes out and we don't know if the emergency is real or not. And, you know, I, in terms of, you know, warfare, that's a huge deal. Like that's a big deal. Right. Yeah. So true. So true. Well, if it were the world, according to you, Dr. Sharkey, what would be your wish for either privacy, cybersecurity, quantum regardless of what it is around the world. So whether that be technology, legal, human behavior, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I just wish we all could get along, you know, and be nice and play friendly and not have problems with one another. Um, But I guess that's, you know, a a dream that, you know, isn't going to come to fruition anytime soon. Um, You know, I was just watching a show you know, on politics the other day about, you know, U.S. versus an adversarial country. And it's it was like listening to two married couples, a married couple that can't get along. <laughs> and it's like they have they're like totally looking at the world in two different ways. And you're just like, one of these has to be real and maybe a little bit of both. But it's like they use their own language against each other. And it, it it's like, wait, why? Why can't we just agree to agree or agree to disagree or and move on about our happy, merry way and not hurt each other? And I don't, you know, and so that, you know, comes down to the same old, you know, our data shouldn't be used against us. We should be able to retain our privacy. Um, you know, legally, we should understand our these legal contracts we're getting into when we sign up for things better um, and the fine print. <laughs> You know, and it shouldn't have to be a full-time job to protect yourself. That's great. I agree with that a thousand percent. One thing that you were talking about, which is the polarization, I think that's definitely true. But part of that, I think, is polarization gets eyeballs. So 
Like I've told people, like if you're on a reality show, I don't know about you. I've never seen women throw drinks on each other and pull each other's hair, but that's like <laughs> on TV all the time. Like they wouldn't be, want to do a reality show about me because I'm going to Costco, right? That's like super boring. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think part of that is a lot of these social media or these outlets, they want to get more eyeballs on stuff. And sometimes that creates them pushing things that are maybe more fringe or on the edge, you know? Yeah. So the more polarizing something becomes, I think the more ability for it to make change for the future uh, uh, becomes apparent. And so, you know, I think that if it's not a polarizing topic, nobody's going to want to do anything about it. Right. Um, But that also doesn't mean that we have to go into it with, um hate and um you know just because something is polarizing doesn't mean that there has to be a negative side to that it can polarize you guys can disagree all, all along but at the same time we should be able to just come together and do it in a way where we respect each other um and that we make progress and how to push progress forward and not just be stagnant. And I think the stagnation is what really leads to the dissonance and then, you know, the acting out, right? Because progress isn't being made at that point. Yeah, that's a great point. Wow. Well, you always give me stuff to think about. So thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. And I love your work. As you know, I love to follow the things that you do because uh, you're just so smart and so, so very kind, very sweet, very welcoming. Thank you, Debbie. I appreciate that. And that's that's what I want for the future. And, and hopefully we'll get there. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much for being on the show and we'll talk soon. All right. Sounds great. Thank you. All right. Perfect.